Hi, my name is Sarah. The Old Testament reading today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 through 12. After David had come back from killing the Philistine, and as the troops returned home, women from all of Israel's towns came out to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with tambourines, rejoicing, and musical instruments. The women sang in celebration, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Saul burned with anger. This song annoyed him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he said, but only credit me with thousands. What's next for him? The kingdom itself? So Saul kept a close eye on David from that point on. The next day, an evil spirit from God came over Saul, and he acted like he was in a prophetic frenzy in his house. So David played the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he threw it, thinking, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from him two different times. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but no longer with Saul. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Meredith. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Adopt the attitude that was Christ in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Naomi. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 11, 33 through 36. People don't light a lamp and then put it in a closet or under a basket. Rather, they place the lamp on a lampstand so that those who enter the house can see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, see it that the light in you is in darkness. If your whole body is full of light, with no part darkened, then it will be as full of light as when a lamp shines brightly on you. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, God of all light, we pray that you would shine on us as we talk through your scriptures. That the light of the glory of God would dawn and shine on us in this place. That our eyes might behold your goodness and your truth. And that our whole lives might be filled with the light of your love. That it might go forth from this place and illuminate places of darkness in our world. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. I want to say a special thanks to our friend Jared Anderson for leading us in worship this morning. Jared is an old friend of Pastor Glenn's and mine. We were in college together, lived on the same floor at various points. I have these really great memories of my senior year in college. Uh, my dorm room was right next to Jared's. And so just getting a chance to lay in my bed as Jared's writing worship songs and singing. It was just an incredible, like that doesn't happen much anymore. You're just going to sit in a room and bask with someone's writing songs that will be sung all around the world. Uh, it was a really incredible experience. When I was a kid growing up in 
in Iowa, uh, I had a, a friend in my class who was just one of these guys who was good at everything, like everything. Uh, he was the best athlete in our school, easy. Not only that, but he was a drummer. So he was like both an athlete and a musician, right? And a cool musician too, like playing the drums, right? Not only that, but he was the best artist in our school. Like he could draw. Not only that, he was the funniest kid in our school. And he skateboarded. <laughs> and, he, and he had a rat tail. And it worked. Like he was, and he was smart and funny and kind and just cool. I mean, he was that guy. I wasn't. <laughs> this was me in early elementary school. And this is like a kind photo. Like school picture day, I'm sure there was Photoshop going on in some capacity. You know, I, lo I love sports, but I just, I had to work really hard. Like, it just wasn't natural for me. The only thing I could do with music was push play on my 10-second skip protection CD player. Like, that was it. I couldn't draw for anything. I was socially awkward, not really that funny at all. I was really kind of quite annoying. And... You know, in addition, I had these glasses that were like 30 years before their time. Like, they're cool now. I was like hipster before hipster. Um, but just, just these huge glasses that my brothers constantly made fun of. I was a nerd. In fact, when I would get to be the point where my, my annoyance level got to be too much for my brothers, they would just tell me to leave and go read the encyclopedia. And I would. <laughs> So I want to thank my brothers publicly for furthering my education <laughs> through humiliation as a kid. But I remember in early elementary school seeing this friend of mine and kind of looking at my life and for the first time thinking, I wish I was somebody else. Like, I wish that I was more like him and less like me. Like, I just, there was something about that experience of the first time kind of comparing yourself to someone else and thinking, ah, I just wish my life was different. I wish I was different. I wish I was someone other than I am. And it certainly wasn't the first time, it certainly wasn't the last time I experienced that. You know, life has this way of kind of having these moments where we look at people in our lives and we see them and we see ourselves and we make comparisons and, you know, something happens inside of us and we're like, ah, you know, I see all these strengths in them and I see this in me. And it has this way of kind of cascading a little bit throughout our lives. I remember junior high and high school being a really late bloomer and just feeling this the whole time. Or going to college and seminary and seeing all these incredibly gifted people um, who just, the Lord was doing really cool things. And they're like, oh, I wish I was more like that. Or being in ministry and thinking, oh, I wish I had that gift or this gift or that my gift was more like their gift in this. And having all of those kinds of things. And it's part of it that's natural for us to have those kind of moments in life. And yet what happens when we find ourselves in this place is that we have a variety of responses to those feelings. Uh, and they range really between two extremes. And one extreme is love. The other extreme is envy. 
This morning we're continuing this series that we're going to be, we've been in since January. We're going to be continuing throughout the season of Lent. It's a series called Kingdom and Chaos as we're walking through the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel really kind of describes Israel's transition from this loosely knit tribal confederation, this group of tribes into a really clear united monarchy, them becoming a people who are under a king. And throughout the book, it's really wrestling with this question of how is it Israel, and particularly Israel's kings, will respond to Yahweh, to their God, and to his kingdom? What will that relationship look like? And what we see throughout the scriptures, actually, is when the people of God submit to God's kingdom, to God's reign, to God's rule, peace ensues. But when we rebel and we say, no, we want to have things our own way, and we sort of push against the reign of God, what happens is, is that chaos breaks forth. And we see this particularly happening in Israel's life at the time period that we've been in the last couple of weeks. We see Israel has made a demand for a human king. And Samuel, the prophet, went and anointed the first king, Saul. And Saul, pretty early on in his reign, takes the authority that he's been given and starts to abuse it. Starts to rebel against God and his kingdom. And so he's rejected it as Israel's king. But while he's still on the throne, God sends Samuel, the prophet, to go and anoint another king. So now we have competition as God goes and anoints Samuel. Or sorry, Samuel goes and anoints David, this young shepherd boy, to be Israel's next king. And over the next few chapters, we start to see how Saul falls and David rises as this is going on. We began that actually last week, looking at David's epic victory over Goliath. And we'll see it again this week as we look at 1 Samuel 18 and see how the royal family, particularly Saul and Jonathan, respond to David's success. That as David is sort of growing in popularity and David is succeeding at everything he does, how is it that Saul and Jonathan respond to him? So if you want to turn in your Bibles, uh, you can turn to 1 Samuel 18. We're going to begin in verse 6, or you can follow along here on the screen. And it says this, it says, After David came back from killing the Philistine. And as the troops returned home, women from all of Israel's towns came out to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with tambourines, rejoicing and musical instruments. And the women sang in celebration, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul burned with anger. The song annoyed him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, but only credited me with thousands. What's next for him? The kingdom itself? And so Saul kept a close eye on David from that point on. See, David delivers this really huge win for Israel and for Saul. He's defeated the Philistines. There's this celebration that's breaking out, and the troops are returning home. You know, it's like a parade is happening, like they've just won the Super Bowl, and everybody's coming out and singing and dancing and celebrating. I mean, there's tambourines, mind you. I mean, this is epic celebration and they're singing and Saul is probably like the grand marshal of the parade. You know, like the sports franchise owner who gets to talk first before the players do? Like, I've never understood that. It's like, what did you do? <laughs> like, you paid some money, but they did all of the work on the fields. 
But he's there, he's at the front, and people are coming out to meet him, and they're singing. But the song that they're singing is really about David. It's about David killing his tens of thousands. The people are singing and dancing. They love David. They celebrate David. They write songs about David. And Saul's furious. The scriptures say that this song annoyed him or displeased him. In the original language, it actually says that this thing was evil in Saul's eyes. That he looked at it and it was evil to him. And that's how he viewed this. He, it disturbed him at this deep level. I mean, how dare they credit David with tens of thousands and only credit me with thousands? So the truth is behind all of that is that Saul really wants to be David. That this is really what he wants. He wants to be honorable. He wants to be successful. He wants to be loved. He wants to be celebrated. He wants to be the guy. He wants to be the subject of the song. He wants to be in that place. And he even feels slightly entitled to it. Right? He's the king after all. Like they should be singing about me. And so he starts to resent David and sees him as a threat. There's a word for this, and it's envy. That this is what envy is, and this is what envy does in us and in our relationships. See, envy at its very base sort of level misdirects our desires and distorts how we see. That we begin to long for some, to be something else, to be someone else, to actually have what they have. It's like coveting in that sort, but coveting generally is like, I want to have that person's possessions, where envy is more, I want to be that person. I want to have their life. Begins to misdirect our desires toward those ends and really distorts how we see. And envy is not even simply just wanting to be like someone. It's not simply saying, I want to be that too, but really I want to be the only one. Like I want that and I don't want anyone else to have it. It's mine. I want to have that. See, sometimes when we find ourselves in those moments where we're comparing ourselves to someone else and we see something admirable in someone, what it can do for us is that it can actually inspire us. It can actually be like, oh, I want to learn more about that. I want to grow. I, I want to learn how to become better at that thing. I want to learn what it means to kind of live in that way. And when we see people in that way, they become our heroes and our mentors. They become the people that we inspire to be and they help us and they, they even create atmospheres for us to learn and to grow. Throughout my life, there's been those people that you find yourself in a relationship with and being around them, you're like, oh, I want to be able to learn how to do that thing in a different way. I won't be able to do it exactly like you, but what would it be like for me to grow in that area? I remember being around this guy, Mark, and he was several years older than me, and I learned from him what it meant to be a husband and a dad and just watching him saying, oh, I want to learn what it means to be like that. Or even being here at New Life, being around Pastor Glenn and Andrew and Daniel and others being like, oh, I want to learn like how to grow as a preacher. I want to learn how to grow in this area. There's people that can inspire us and challenge us to grow and become better. But other times when we notice that sort of distance between us, something else happens. 
that rather than sort of being inspired and seeing those people as heroes or mentors or friends or people that we want to be around, suddenly something shifts in us and we see them as enemies or as rivals. The envy kind of starts to take root in us and distorts everything about our interactions with that person. I remember the one of the very first times that that really ugliness of envy took root in me, it was when I was a sophomore in high school and my first like real girlfriend broke up with me in the school cafeteria on February 15th. (laughs) And then that afternoon, that same day, I started dating this other guy who was a senior uh, and really just kind of like, I don't think the guy showered, to be honest with you. And it was just like, And I really didn't have any interaction with this guy before that moment. But all of a sudden, this guy who was really just a guy in our school became my arch rival. You know, like there was something that's like, I, Corey, you know, like you just, like suddenly something's happened because he, he has a life that I thought I wanted. And so something distorted inside of me and I began to see him in a very, very different way. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said that envy is a small town sin. There's something about envy that really happens in close proximity. It happens with the people who are near to us, the people whose life we can all feel like, ah, oh, I can just like taste it, I can see it. It doesn't usually happen for people that are distant from us, but those that are near, it's our family and our friends and our classmates, and our coworkers, people that get promoted inside of the company before we do, or roommates that have things that happen in their life before it happens in our life. It's the people that live in this close proximity to us. And what happens is, is when envy takes root, we start to see those people differently. From the passage, it says, from that day on, Saul eyed David. He eyed him. The implication is that Saul began to see David with an evil eye. Like that passage that Jesus was talking about, where he said, if your whole body is, if your eye is full of light, your whole body's full of light. But if your eye is bad, then suddenly a poison kind of starts to take root in us. We begin to see everything through this distorted lens and view. So when envy takes root in us, we look at something and all we can see it and look at it is say, like, that's evil. And it might not be, but it feels that way to us. It goes on, it says, The next day an evil spirit from God came over Saul, and he acted like he was in a prophetic frenzy in his house. This is probably one of the most troubling passages in all of 1 Samuel. Right? You read this like, wait a minute. An evil spirit from God? Like, what do we do with that? This isn't the first time, actually. And this becomes a reoccurring theme in Saul's life. The first time it happens is actually back in chapter 16. Then it happens right after Saul begins to do what is evil in the Lord's eyes. Same phrase. What is evil in the Lord's eyes, Saul begins to do those things. He rebels against Yahweh. And Yahweh rejects him as king. And so Yahweh's spirit, the spirit of Yahweh that came upon Saul when he was anointed, now leaves. And eventually it goes to David. And instead, an evil spirit from Yahweh, not, an evil, not the evil spirit of Yahweh, but an evil spirit from Yahweh or an evil spirit from God comes and begins to torment Saul. 
but it comes only after Saul commits himself to doing evil. That this is when it happens. Saul is the culpable person here. That it's Saul who said, I'm going to do evil. It's Saul that chooses evil. It's Saul that chooses to see and look at things in evil ways. And Saul never actually repents. There's a few passages where Saul says, well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But if you look behind it, he's like, but it's the people that made me do it. Or forgive me quickly so that I don't lose standing in people's eyes. He's kind of pretending to repent. He's not really sorry. He's just concerned about what it's going to cost him. So he commits himself to being evil, to choosing this way. And now he faces the consequences of setting himself in that way. Yahweh removes his spirit from him and permits an evil spirit to come and to torment Saul. But before this happened, Samuel actually confronts Saul and he points something out. I think it's really important for us to remember here. It says this in 1 Samuel 15. So Samuel said, even if you think you are insignificant, aren't you the leader of Israel? The Lord anointed you king. See, before Saul turns against David, he considers himself insignificant. Something's going on already in here in Saul. Even though the Lord had anointed him as king over Israel, Saul literally, in the original language, saw himself as small in his own eyes. That in his own eyes, he was small. And what envy does is envy seizes upon our insecurity in order to tether us to evil. Seizes on those parts of us in order to tether us to evil. See, what envy does is when we look at someone else and we see their strengths or we see their successes, we don't just see those, but we actually see our weaknesses and our shortcomings being magnified. That those things suddenly begin to get bigger in us. We see and feel our own lack more acutely. It's like, oh, we begin to see all the ways that we don't measure up as a person. It's like, oh, I'm just not there. Or as a leader, I'm just not as effective as this person. Or looking at ourselves as a professional, saying like, oh, maybe I'm just not good enough in this capacity. Or maybe as somebody who is hoping to be married at some point, saying, well, maybe I just don't measure up. and Not what people are looking for. Thinking about ourselves as a son or a daughter and looking for parents' approval. And like, oh, maybe I just, something's... Uh, off in me. Maybe I'm not creative enough. Maybe I'm not efficient enough. Maybe I'm not funny enough. Maybe I'm not attractive enough. Maybe I'm not this enough. And we have those insecurities inside of us. What envy does is it begins to just sort of highlight all of those things. We become overwhelmed and even consumed with our own shortcomings. And we even begin to see those differently than what they really are. We look in an evil way at those successes and we begin to even look at a more evil way at ourselves. See them in a distorted view. Seeing ourselves through a distorted lens. And sort of captures us in that moment and pushes us toward evil things, evil thoughts, evil desires, evil actions. They begin to come out of that. What happened is when this happened to Saul, David played the lyre as he usually did. So when this would happen to Saul, David would play music to calm him, to try to help him. But Saul had a spear in his hand. I guess as you do when you're listening to music, you 
like just hold this spear just in case. And he threw it thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David escaped from him two different times. Either David's really fast or Saul's a terrible aim. Like, I don't know, I don't know what the proximity was. But listen, it says Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but no longer with Saul. And so Saul removed David from his service and placed him in command of a unit of a thousand men. And when David led the men out to Warren back, David was successful in everything he did because the Lord is with him. And Saul saw that he was very successful and he was afraid because of him. See, Saul fears David. It's repeated twice here and again in verse 29. He's terrified by David's success. See someone succeeding and he feels terror inside of himself. We all know what that feels like. See, in Saul's eyes, every time David increased, Saul decreased. That he saw himself getting smaller. Those insecurities were magnified. It continued to sort of like pick away and even peel back the scars and the scabs of the wounds inside of us. And it pushed him further. Further and further into the plans and ways of evil. And so it ultimately tries to kill him. Two times here and four other times, at least in the next chapter and a half, he tries to take David out. See, envy causes us to fear others' successes and seeks to empty them in order to fill ourselves. It's like, ah, oh, if I can just take that from them, if I can empty them in some way, then that will fill me up. And for most of us, that doesn't happen by actually physically harming someone. But it's other ways creating these sort of imaginary competitions in our head, you know, and just saying, putting ourselves against someone or putting ourselves in a competitive sort of relationship with someone, even changing the dynamic of a friendship in order for it to be a little bit of a competition rather than a partnership. Or it begins to happen where we take pleasure in someone else's distress and even find ways that we can, you know, make the distress harder. <laughs> just little ways. See them suffer just a little bit more? Or the ways in which we gossip or make false accusations just trying to bring someone else's reputation down? Like, ah, if I can just undercut them in some way, then maybe that will help. Or we begin to start working to undermine their work, their relationships, the things that they're doing, just finding ways that we might get undermined their own successes. That's what happened to me after that girl broke up with me. That's like my whole sophomore summer was just like, how do I take this guy down? <laughs> like, what can I do? We're on the same baseball team. We didn't even play the same position. And like, he's like the enemy. Like, I just want him to fail. I don't care how it impacts the team. You know, I just want him to fail and just beginning to look for every piece of information that I could find about him that could possibly be negative so I could share it with as many people as possible in hopes that that girl might hear it. Like just finding these little ways that we begin to undercut somebody else. In extreme cases, it can go to physical harm as it does here for Saul. It's interesting, several of Saul's attempts to kill David are actually thwarted by his own kids. And his own, his own kids who come in and protect David in the middle of this. Saul envies David, but his kids actually love David. 
And this is particularly true with Jonathan. Look how Jonathan responds to David and David's successes in comparison to Saul. This is the beginning of the chapter, beginning of verse 1. It says, as soon as David had finished talking with Saul, this was right after Goliath, Jonathan's life became bound up with David's. And Jonathan cared about David as much as he cared about himself. From that point forward, Saul kept David in the service and wouldn't allow him to return to his father's household. And Jonathan and David made a covenant together because Jonathan cared about David as much as himself. It's interesting here is that Jonathan actually had more to lose from David's success than anybody. That Jonathan was supposed to be the next in line to the throne. He's the crown prince. And Jonathan had been the most heroic warrior in Israel's history up to this point. Remember, he's the one that sort of did that daring climb and went and attacked that Philistine garrison on the, on the middle of that cliff. He was the one that was celebrated as being the crown prince and the great champion. And now David is threatening both of those things. Jonathan has more to lose, but he sees David differently than Saul does. He sees him with love. See, what love does is love sees others as sisters and brothers rather than enemies and rivals. Allows us to see people as sisters and brothers. In the ancient world, there were two types of covenants that people made. Covenants between a greater king and a lesser king, in which they would say the greater king is going to act like a father to the lesser king, who's going to act like a son to the greater king. The other type of covenant is a covenant made between two equals who said, hey, you and me, let's start acting like brothers or sisters toward one another. Let's act like family, not like my brothers, but like better brothers toward one another. Let's do this. Let's act as family toward one another. Jonathan sees David as his brother, not as his enemy. And he commits himself to him. He binds his life to him, and he binds his life to him for good. See, the thing that love does it. Love binds us to other people for their good, for their flourishing, for their successes. Jonathan binds his life to David, makes a covenant with him. And notice what it says, though. It says he does this because he cares about David as much as he cares about himself. Repeats that twice in there. See, Jonathan is able to care for David because he cares about himself. Saul can't love David because he loathes himself. He can't love him. He hates himself. So he can't love another person. He can't go into that place, but Jonathan can. Jonathan cares about himself, so he's able to care about David. This is why Jesus said, love your neighbor as your self. That it's recognizing who we are as God's beloved children that allows us to actually go and love other people. Jonathan knew this. And for us, sometimes envy sort of exposes inside of us a, a sense that we don't actually believe that we're loved. But the way to sort of combat that is to actually allow the Father to love us. To recognize our own belovedness, that it's not we're loved if we could be more like this person or more like that person, or if we could have this life or that life, but Jesus loves us just for who we are and made us to be us and loves us as us. He doesn't need another other person. He needs you. 
He needs me and he loves us in that place for who we are. And Jonathan knows this, so he's able to love somebody else when we understand and receive our own belovedness from the Father. When we know, as Jared saying today, that overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. The love that doesn't make sense, it's not calculated, it's just extravagant. When we know that, then we're actually able to love others. When we don't know, we're tempted toward envy. But it's when we know the deep, deep love of God. It goes on and says this. This is what Jonathan then did next. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. I'm not sure what a guy has left at this, at this point. But, but then listen to this. It says, David went out and was successful in every mission. And Saul sent him to do. That Saul sent him to do. And so Saul placed him in charge of the soldiers. And this pleased all the troops as well as Saul's servants. Jonathan gives his robe and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. And David goes out and is even more successful. We know from the text that a huge part is because the Holy Spirit is with David. But I wonder how much else of it was because Jonathan said, hey, take all the best weapons I can give you and go out and fight. Then instead of being feeling threatened by David, he gives him everything so that David can succeed. Gives David everything he needs to continue to thrive and to actually continue to succeed. So this is what love does. Love celebrates others' success and empties us in order to fill others. It just empties. It gives out. It celebrates and encourages and promotes and it empowers other people in their successes. When somebody else has something good happen, it says, yes, that's awesome. That's great. You're going to go and do this new thing. That's amazing. What can I do to help support you in that? How can I encourage you in that? How can I champion that? How can I give to that? How can I come alongside of that? How can I see you thrive? And love does everything it can to pour out of itself to cause others to thrive, even if it means sacrificing self. It's like, that's all right. I know who I'm loved by, so I can give out so that you can thrive. The greatest example of this, of course, is Jesus himself. This is the journey Jesus takes. Shows us the kind of love that empties himself so others can thrive. It celebrates in our own thriving. This is beautifully expressed in that hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Where Paul is writing, he says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. You hear the sense of full understanding and knowing who he is and being secure in the eternal belovedness of the Trinity. It's like, I don't need to exploit this. I don't need to worry about, I know who, I know that I am eternally loved. I know who I am. No, no, I don't need to sort of wrestle and grapple and try to bring other people. I don't need any of that. I am eternally loved. I am the Father's beloved Son, the one in whom he is well pleased. And so because he knew that, he's, emptied himself he emptied emptied everything he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave by 
like to serve, to come alongside, to cause other people to rise and to thrive and to find life. And by becoming like human beings, by becoming like us, when found himself in the, human, in the form of a human, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he emptied himself completely out that we might be full, that we might be lifted up, that we might come to know life and life full, life abundantly, life the way that we were intended to receive it from the Father. He emptied himself out in love that we might experience that and we might know the deep love of God that would change us and then we might be able to reflect that to other people around us. And so we remember that every Sunday as we come to this table. The self-emptying love of God that comes to fill us up. The God whose body was broken and his blood was shed, who's given out that we might find everything that we need given from him for us. Pastor Glenn, would you lead us to the table? Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.